0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome
1: to New Books and Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. Today we'll be talking to Herbert Terrace, author of Why Chimpanzees Can't Learn Language and Only Humans Can, published in 2019 by Columbia University Press. Welcome to New Books and Language, Herbert.
2: I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
1: Well, so your book's thesis is really nicely encapsulated in the title. Only humans can learn language and primates like chimpanzees cannot. So in, in the course of the interview we'll we'll unpack your reasoning, but let's let's start with a big picture. Why why did you think this was an important book to write? What is the goal of the book?
2: Well, about fifty years ago, I and other psychologists thought we could in fact teach chimpanzees to learn language. And um, we knew that they weren't able to articulate the sounds of language. Their vocal apparatus was limited. So two um, other tex- techniques we used. One was to train a chimpanzee to use the signs of American sign language. We know that um, a chimpanzee's gesture, so um, that looked promising. And the other approach was to use visual symbols of different colors, sizes, and shapes. So I was a graduate student at Harvard. I worked with Skinner, who um, wrote a book called Verbal Behavior while I was a graduate student, claiming that um, language could be reduced to conditioned responses. And um, Skinner at that time was probably the major psychologist in the country I believed him. I was always interested in language and the evolution of language. And then to my pleasant surprise, after I started working at Columbia, I read that um, some psychologists at the University of Nevada, Alan and Beatrice Gardner, trained a chimpanzee named Washoe to use signs. And that that was electrifying. I followed the um, work very closely, even though my work was... Uh, with pigeons at the time. And um, there were reports that Washu could not only learn signs, but she can put them together so as to create a sentence. And um, I remember Roger Brown, who was the most distinguished psycholinguist at the time, he was at Harvard, said, This is like getting an SOS from outer space. Um, so I visited the gardeners and I looked carefully at their work, and I said, this is wonderful, but it's not convincing, because the um, work they reported was anecdotal. Um, It was as if a, not as if, it was a graduate student, Roger Fouts, who said he was out on a rowboat uh, with Washoe, and they passed a swan, and Washoe signed Waterbird, as if it was that simple. But there were no... Um, what's called a corpus where you list, like you do with studying language in children, everything that the child says. Um, Roger simply uh, wrote down Waterbird. Now, it could be that Washu signed Bird Water. It could be that she was drilled to sign Water and Bird separately. We don't know that. Um, So I thought about that. And I said, I'd like to start my own project. And I arranged to get a, a newborn chimpanzee um, from a primate center in Oklahoma. That was in 1972. Um, had him flown to New York. He was named Nimchimsky. And I went about trying to collect a corpus of all of his signs. So that's how I started. Now, n- now, Now, initially... I thought I was very successful. I collected more than 20,000 combinations of two or more signs. Many of them seemed orderly, Um, adjectives seemed to occur before nouns, Um, verbs occurred before pronouns, Um, and I sent a report to science, they were ready to accept that, when by accident, I was teaching a new um, trainer how to work with a chimpanzee, and we were watching a session of an experienced trainer and them, and all of a sudden, I saw that everything I found was an artifact. It was an artifact of the trainer being so eager to get them to sign, that about a quarter of a second before he signed, uh, she signed, and Nim imitated the sign, and it was unwitting. Nobody was trying to cheat, but but it was just an overzealous teacher, and it was not just one. All the teachers did the same thing, and I looked at the gar- films of the gardeners, and I saw the same kind of prompting, and I realized that my claims that a chimpanzee could create a sentence was an artifact of prompting. So that was that put me in a totally different direction about language in a chimpanzee.
1: Yeah. And so after after that you concluded that chimpanzees couldn't learn language or did something else come in between that uh, sort of
2: experimental yeah, failure
1: and the book you're writing?
2: I concluded that from <clears throat> all the extensive videotapes that I had. From the films that the gardeners uh, made and they had some tracings in their publications, I looked at a film of a gorilla named Coco that Penny Patterson trained. And in every instance, there was prompting. I also asked myself, why would such an intelligent creature as an ape not learn language? And... um, I began a movement in psychology called animal cognition where um, I began to train monkeys that nobody ever accused the monkey of, you know, knowing language, but I taught them the same kind of visual sequences that psychologists like Sue Savage-Rumbaugh and Dwayne Rumbaugh and David Premack taught chimpanzees. You can teach a chimpanzee to, to touch on a, Uh, touch touchscreen, please machine give Apple. Well, I could do that with a monkey and I can actually get longer sequences, but they're rote. Uh, It's like going to an ATM and putting in your password. And that's not evidence of language. It's evidence that you can train somebody to produce a rote sequence. So I concluded that, um, unfortunately, apes um, seem to... Uh, manipulate symbols, but they're not doing it for the purpose of communicating in language.
1: And so your book is in part showing this negative conclusion, but you're also, and we'll get into this in a moment, giving a positive explanation as to why there is this uh, difference between human beings and even intelligent primates like chimpanzees, great amps, and
2: and so on. Exactly. So I, for, for many years, just thought, my results would just go in the pile of so-called negative results in science. But sometimes negative results can produce positive insights. And it turned out that during the years after I published the negative results, two discoveries were made, one in children by developmental psychologists, And another by paleoanthropologists who uncovered about almost two dozen fossils of our ancestors that appeared after we split from chimpanzees about six million years ago. So at the time, you know, chimpanzees were the obvious um, animal to try to establish language. Uh, And we you know, aside from Neanderthals, had no idea of uh, other precursor ancestors to humans. But now we knew quite a bit about them. And um, we also knew, and this is probably even more dramatic, that human infants, before they produce their first word at about one year, they go through two nonverbal stages in which they first, relate to their mothers uh, dyadically just in terms of exchanging emotions, and then triadically where they both pay attention to an object. Uh, and it turns out that those kinds of relations are uniquely human. You don't see these in chimpanzees. And I, I concluded that in order to learn to produce a word, you have to go through these nonverbal stages. Um, it also turned out that um, paleoanthropologists and linguists suggested that Homo erectus, an ancestor who uh, appeared about almost 2 million years ago, probably produced the first words. Um, <clears throat> there was also an anthropologist named um, Sarah Arty who had a theory that uh, primates like Homo erectus were raised differently from an ape. Um, they were raised by not only their mother, but by many other relatives called alloparents, and that in the process of satisfying alloparents, uh, they became much more cooperative than apes and readier to relate to um other individuals in a way that would eventually produce language right
1: so your your thesis then challenges for for one thing uh, noam chomsky's work yes. in particularly situating language as uh, the emergence of language in human beings as a very social phenomenon that requires not only certain biological precursors, certainly, and we can talk about those, but it involves a particular intersubjectivity and social coordination, attention to, uh, shared attention to objects and, and things like that. Maybe we could back up a little bit for some of our listeners. I think many of them will be familiar with the debate between Skinner and Chomsky, but can you explain why what you're talking about here is relevant to this larger question about language?
2: Sure. You know, um, the, the debate between Skinner and Chomsky started a year after Skinner published Verbal Behavior in 1957. And Chomsky wrote a scathing review of that book, Um, and he attacked Skinner on two fronts, one at the level of the word and the other at the level of the sentence. And uh, in the years that's passed, I agreed with Chomsky that Skinner's attempt to describe um, sentences as a chain of one conditioned response after another just doesn't work. However, I think that Skinner's definition of words uh, was very prescient and it very much in tune with modern views of how um, children learn words. And I think that, I mean, Skinner, uh, sorry, Chomsky invented um, a concept called the language acquisition device, an innate device uh, which would automatically get children to uh, produce sentences, but Chomsky actually admits he has no idea where words came from. And words are crucial for Chomsky. Um, As he points out many times, the essence of language is the ability to create an infinite number of meanings from a finite number of words. But you can't do that unless you have words. And Chomsky I think because he didn't want any kind of behavioral influence in his theory resisted social factors. But it, um, in, indeed, there is overwhelming evidence now, and I think even Chomsky occasionally admits that, that to learn words, you need the social input of caregivers, usually parents, um, to establish first the emotional bonds, and then the um, attentional bonds to produce the first word.
1: Mm-hmm. So this is a, trying to, s- to explain evolutionarily how we're able to uh, explain the origin of, of language in in a creature that n- didn't have it before. What is well, what is the need for right. it? What's the right. the benefit for for survival? Uh, and that, could yeah. I just yeah, interrupt yeah, you for a Absolutely. second? Sure.
2: Um, In fact, I'm writing another book, which um, has the working title, In the Beginning, There Were No Words. And the question is, how do you go from the emotional signals that uh, animals use to communicate, which are mainly to influence another individual's behavior, to communicating information with arbitrary symbols like words. And I think that that step is as major as the step from words to grammar. In in the first step, you have to invent a new form of articulation. Um, to go from words to grammar, you already have them, and the words simply have to be reorganized. So I think the challenge for linguists interested in the evolution of language is to figure out um, how you do the first step going from uh, animal communication to words. And I think that step implies another step um, where you go from animal communication to intersubjectivity, the nonverbal sharing of emotions and attention and then you go to words, and then you go to grammar.
1: So if I'm tracking, the idea is that reference emerges uh, not directly from animal communication, like uh, bird song and dolphin squeaks and things like that, but that you have to have this intermediary step where this, there's the this shared uh, intersubjectivity among animals. Is that...
2: And joint attention. That's right. That's right. And it's, it's so, it's so um, you know, when you work with infants... They're so cute and so lovable. And you engage in all of these uh, emotional and intentional exchanges. And, you know, ev- everybody's happy. And very few people have thought about this critically as how that's essential for the eventual production of a word. Mm-hmm. Can, can we talk
1: a little bit about that more then? So you're talking about uh, shared attention. And I mean, if if someone's not an expert in this area, you might think, well, I can see shared attention with lots of creatures. If I I have a dog and I teach the dog, ball means ball. And and we look at the ball together and and we share our attention. And isn't that a kind of language learning? So what's the difference between that kind of model and what's going on in human infants?
2: So as you say, you play with a dog and with a ball and you share attention that animals can do. But that's sort of like parallel seeing. You know, I turn my head and look at the sky and you turn your head and look at the sky and we both see a plane. But how do I know that you're seeing what I'm seeing? Our heads turn, our eyes travel in a certain direction, but we know nothing about your knowledge as compared to my knowledge. And The way developmental psychologists have gotten around that problem is they also add social engagement between the two individuals. So sometimes a child will point to an object and look at the caregiver and smile. And it's those social reactions that are crucial that you don't see with anybody playing with a dog or with any animal. And that's what gives you the difference between joint attention and shared attention. Joint attention is uniquely human. Um, Shared attention you can get with other animals.
1: And would you say there's an underlying, um, maybe this goes a little bit beyond your book, but an underlying theory of mind that that suggests that the infant has that the dog doesn't, or do you not go that far?
2: No, well, I think it's the first step to a theory of mind. Mm -hmm. The theory of mind um, is a concept that was developed many years ago and it it involves beliefs and propositions and so (laughs) Mm -hmm. on. Um, I think the first stop, the first step in that direction is joint attention. Mm -hmm. And from that, you build up to things that would eventually give you what psychologists and philosophers call theory of mind.
1: So let's, let's turn back to the, the paleoanthropology that you were talking about earlier. So you've, you know, moved from direct observation of chimpanzees where you said, OK, look, this is this is not what we thought it was before. Uh, but now, if we're looking to fossil evidence, we certainly can't directly observe the emergence of language in, in these contexts. But you do mention in your book things like a smaller pelvis and a birth canal, upright stance. And then you've mentioned Derek Bickerton and Sarah Rudy. Um, What's the evidence for the emergence of language in Homo erectus in particular? How do you understand that?
2: Well, you know, this is not a slam dunk explanation. This is a theory. So, um, Homo erectus is a very interesting ancestor. Their brains were about three times the size of a chimpanzee's. And when you look at the fossil record from chimpanzees towards um, the uh, genus Homo, you see many creatures or Stereoepiphycus, for example, whose brains were hardly bigger than a chimpanzee. And then you get to Homo, and the first um, uh, new species is Homo habilis, had a brain about five to 600 um, cubic centimeters. But then you get this jump to about 900 cubic centimeters with Homo erectus. And One fact that paleoanthropologists have discovered is that Homo erectus was the first ancestor that definitively used stone tools. That is, they can break a stone and make a sharp edge. Um, Now, it's true that chimpanzees can use a tool, like they can take a stick and put it in a mound of termites and extract the termite, but nothing um, as advanced as uh, making sharp edges from stone tools. Second point is that the size of their brains um, made them voracious seekers of calories. Uh, The brain requires more calories uh, for growth than any other organ of the body. And one of the challenges of Homo erectus was how to get those calories, and the best source was meat. Um, they weren't um, able to use weapons and hunt animals, but there is evidence, good evidence, that they scavenged. And the evidence comes from analyses. When you look at the bones of dead animals like elephants and zebras and so on, paleoanthropologists look at what's called a cut mark, and that comes from a stone tool used by Homo erectus, <clears throat> and bite marks, that comes from a predator like a lion or a saber-toothed tiger that bit into the bone. <clears throat> it turns out that before two million years ago, bite marks occurred below Cut marks indicating that the predator was the first had the first access to the meat of a dead animal. After about two million years uh, ago, we see that the cut marks occurred first in many of those instances, indicating that um, Homo erectus was capable of scavenging. So there you have a survival argument that. Um, Homo erectus needed meat and you can get the best source of meat was a dead animal. So then the question that Bickerton raised is how do they communicate about dead animals? I mean, you're in East Africa, hundreds of thousands of acres that were individual Homo erectus go and scour for a dead animal. And Suppose you find one, and, but then you have to go to your base and find fellow Homo erectus to say, I found a dead elephant or a zebra or a giraffe, and there are other predators. I need your help. Now, the interesting thing about that kind of communication is the scout who has seen the dead animal can't point to it. So the scout has to somehow communicate that, one, there's a certain kind of dead animal, and two, I need your help, and let's go and scavenge that dead animal before other predators um, get the meat. And you can't prove this, but Bickerton argues that that was the source of the first words uh, it uses what linguists call displacement, referring to uh, things that can't be seen. Now, I th- I've, I've thought about that theory, and I think that Vickerton, no fault of his own, is a very clever theory. Overlooked the fact that thanks to collective reading that Ar- Artie spoke about, uh, joint attention probably developed beforehand where Homo erectus you know, might be sitting around and one points to a tree or an animal or a person and gives that a name. Um, so in that manner, they established names for things that are visibly present. And then later on, when they have to describe things that somebody else can't see, they developed terms like meat or whatever they wanted to call it at that time. So in i I it, this is very it's different but similar to how children learn language. Of course, back in the days of Homo erectus, there was no culture, there was no um set of there was no vocabulary for describing things. Homo erectus had to literally invent words, which is a much bigger challenge than children who are brought up in a culture where the caregivers know the words and they just have to um, orient the uh, emotions and attention of a child so that they can learn to name
0: things. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. So it sounds like there's a couple
1: of things going on here that's that are these these steps that you're describing. So uh, one is one is naming, so referring to an object um, either present or out of view with a, right. a sound, an arbitrary sound. Um, That's right, and and then also it seems like something more, if not sentential, uh, more like a a command or a, a a request that might involve that term, but it's not just this is that thing, but let's go get that thing. Um, right. So um, yeah. So how how do you understand the um, the evidence that uh, that these are I guess sort of the same, based on the same kind of uh, process. So, because uh, w- naming, you know, it seems like words is one unit, but then when we're talking about commands or requests, that seems to be uh, a whole speech act, which which seems a bit more complicated.
2: You, well, actually, you're absolutely right. There's a fundamental difference between a request and indicating and referring. And I think we've seen with chimpanzees that they can learn requests. Um, Those are called imperative, the imperative function of language. They can ask for milk, for a hug, for a drink, and so on. But it turns out that imperatives form a minuscule fraction of human vocabulary. If um, all an infant could do was learn requests, you and I cannot be having this conversation. Because um, there's no um, room for declaratives, which is the bulk of human conversation, where there is a speaker and a listener who go back and forth to share information. So um, it's true that there's overlap between humans and apes in terms of requests. But There's no overlap in terms of what um, linguists call declarative statements. And there's no conversation. In fact, I now define a word that excludes imperatives. I define a word as an arbitrary symbol that's used conversationally. And that is uniquely human. And I think that distinction has to be made to differentiate between declaratives and imperatives.
1: I see. And so is this then another point of contrast with, with Chomsky because it seems like he's prioritized the idea of um, the, maybe it's not exactly a, a, a contrast, but he, he's emphasized this idea that language is this internal, uh, it begins with the mutation, we're able to right. use concepts. We have this sort of private thought that is then made made exterior Um, How does that model map onto or contrast with how you're understanding language in terms of um, declaratives? Right.
2: Well, that would probably take hours to unpack. (laughs) It's a a very brilliant, interesting theory. But, you know, Chomsky, as I said, is not concerned with words, he's concerned with computations. And um, a few years ago, he wrote a book called. Why just us? Uh, arguing that the computational system for language is what separates us from other species. He, because in part of the ape language results and their positive results, said words were not uniquely uh, human, and put he, he distinguished between two aspects of language. Um, the faculty of language in the narrow sense for which only grammar is there and faculty of language in the broad sense, which includes broad, which includes words. So I differ f- with Chomsky there because I think words in the declarative sense belong in the faculty of language in the narrow sense. But as I say, Chomsky... Um, Talks about words as a mystery. Doesn't know where they come from, but um, once he has words, then he is has conceived the brilliant theories ever since the sixties of the kinds of grammar that best describe the human ability to um, that is the universal grammar of all languages, all six or seven thousand languages.
1: Well, let's. Um, I have plenty of questions on Chomsky. Let's, but let's go go back to the the primates and the and the chimps for a, a little bit. Sure. So, uh, you have mentioned you mentioned sign language, uh, but you also mentioned lexigrams earlier, and I wanted to return to that because um, you, you argued that even these cases where the chimps would press on symbols to receive corresponding items like food or tools uh, don't show that primates can learn words. So. Uh, I want to hear a little yeah, bit more why and also maybe if you can t- connect that to what you've just said about your, your hypothesis about human beings to, to really help us understand the distinction here.
2: Sure. Um, so when I read that a chimpanzee named Blana, trained by Dwayne and Susava Drumbau, produced sequences like Please Machine Give Apple by touching um, buttons on a Computer system, one for please, one for machine, one for give, one for Apple. I uh, said to myself, "I think I could teach a monkey to do that." And um, so I developed a uh, technology with touchscreens, where instead of using uh, lexigrams, I just had arbitrary photographs, and it turned out that it was not that hard to get monkeys to produce not just four-item sequence, so like Please Machine Give Apple, but seven-item sequences. And they could learn many different seven-item sequences. And it became clear that monkeys can think, in, in this sense, without language, that they somehow could represent symbols sequentially. They're born with a sense of space. Uh, and that's what I'm sure the chimpanzees are doing but as i said when you go to the bank and you punch in your password you're not creating a sentence you're by rote um putting in a sequence of symbols that have no other meaning then that's a way for you to get cash just as it's a way for a monkey to get a banana pellet by touching the photographs on my touch screen right
1: but so is part of the idea that that ability to, to represent internally and to manipulate symbols in that limited way, that's at least a necessary precursor to the sort of thing that allowed Homo erectus to use proto-language?
2: Absolutely. I mean, um, one of the things that uh, surprised Uh, a lot of psychologists, I and other uh, psychologists, created a field called animal cognition, which sounds like an oxymoron. You know, uh, Descartes said animals can't think because they don't have language. So, and Skinner's um, theory is based on uh, stimuli that are immediately present. It turns out that Skinner has had no... Way to explain memory because all of the stimuli that were used in his experiments were immediately present. So the question is how does an animal respond on the basis of a stimulus that's no longer present? And many of Skinner's students came up with examples where animals could do just that. Um, a pigeon could remember a symbol it saw 30 minutes ago and Selected when given a choice, and even though that original stimulus was not there. So um, the field of animal con- cognition was a way of correcting that limitation of Skinner's behaviorism, and uh, sequence production is just an advanced case where the monkey, in this instance, can remember how to touch the photographs on a touchscreen in a particular order. Yeah. So let me
1: let me go back to you. Just mentioned pigeons, and one of the things we do on this podcast is we we ask our, our authors to tell us a little bit about how they got involved in the book's topic. And in, in your case, I think a lot is is known about this. You've been a public figure for a while, but um, I'm just curious about the the pigeons and the work with Skinner. What's what got you interested in these ideas, even as a graduate student? Way, you know, before you you looked at chimpanzees, what grabbed you about well,
2: this? Uh... When I was a graduate student, I did a dissertation which had the title Discrimination Learning With and Without Errors, where I trained pigeons to tell the difference between red and green or between a vertical and a horizontal line without making any mistakes. And that's, I did that by training them to respond to the positive stimulus and making the negative stimulus so different that there was no tendency to respond to it, and then I gradually faded the intensity and the duration of the negative stimulus to its full value. And the so, I mean, I was very um, happy as a behaviorist. Um, and before I got to graduate school, I always thought of language as one of the most interesting things in psychology. And I was aware that in a sense language is the Achilles heel of the theory of evolution, because evolution seemed to be able to explain all kinds of structure and behavior, but not language. So I was very pleased that Skinner took on language in his book, on verbal Behavior. But once um, it became known that other psychologists were attempting to teach our closest living ancestor, chimpanzees, language, and succeeding, I dropped my behavioral work, shifted to um, what's called ape language, and then um, seeing the results were negative, um, fell in with other psychologists to start this field called animal cognition, in which I'm still doing research on how um, animals think without language.
1: Yeah, and so you you mentioned in the book other kinds of animals, and I know this is going just a little bit beyond, but uh, one of the sort of, I guess, famous cases that gets talked about in in popular media is the case of dolphins, and this seems right up your alley sure. because the the claim is that dolphins are using uh, you know tones and squeals to refer to each other by name, uh, and that would seem to be in line with this idea that there's uh, words coming first as a sort of a social coordination and so on and so forth. First of all, do you have any opinions on the research about dolphins? And second, do you think it's possible that language could eventually emerge in another animal like dolphins?
2: Um, my simple answer is no, and I'll tell you why. Um, it's certainly true that dolphins emit sounds, so do whales, and that's been the subject of research for 20, 30 years. And it seems as if the function of those sounds is to say, I'm here, and to identify one's position underwater. Uh, but there is absolutely no evidence that they function as names um, or that they're uh, arbitrary. These are sort of inborn, you can't teach dolphins to make new sounds. Um, so they're like most, um, uh, products of animal communication. They're inborn, they're, um, emotional to say, I'm here. Sometimes to stay out of my territory. Um, and they're immutable. You can't change them. Uh, you even see, I mean, people talk about birds and their songs. Again, the same situation and. You have bird duets, just like you have back and forth communication from one dolphin to another. But those are all hardwired, immutable, and their main function is to say, "I'm here, keep out of my territory," mm. and so on.
1: So, if I'm understanding, it's something like what Grace would consider natural meaning. This is just um, the, the the squeak or the sound is. Associated with the animal's presence, it, it plays this sort of stimulus response sort of thing. As a, ter- As
2: a territorial, territorial. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And there's not any case of dolphins sort of talking about each other behind each other's back when the, uh, the animals no, are not, no. at, not present.
2: I mean, when I started my chimp research, my ambition was I'll teach a chimpanzee sign language, and then we'll go in the jungle, and I'll ask my chimpanzee, what are those other chimpanzees saying to each other? I mean, that's, that's that's where I started from, but see, I don't think that's possible. And the reason I don't think it's possible is that there's no evidence that animals of any kind go through this phase of intersubjectivity and joint attention. And I think those are necessary conditions, even though they've been invisible uh, for so many years for the reduction of language. And
1: I just want to be be real clear about this. It's it's not just making the um, conditions possible for that, in other words, putting them in a in a human family or spending time with the, the them. It's also about their um, their biological structures as well, right? It's not like if we just put dolphins together in the right kind of place and then no, that would emerge.
2: They, they, no, they have to have the the biological structure to do that. And I think the reason, the best answer I I know of as to why humans have it and animals don't comes from Artie's collective breeding hypothesis that um, when our ancestors had to learn to please many parents, um, there was selection for that. And um, that selection brought out this hyper cooperativeness that is ne- that is needed for language mm. and without that i don't think you you ever going to get language
1: yeah can you say just a little bit uh more about that because we talked we talked about Bickerton but we didn't get a chance to talk about Artie as much
2: right because well it's, they both published independently without knowing anything about each other and uh i think Bickerton described a more advanced stage of human development when Uh, Homo erectus engage in what's called displacement, but Artie spoke about why in the first place an infant would want to communicate um, with a caregiver in some arbitrary manner. And uh, as I say, this comes from the practice of collective breeding, where unlike a chimpanzee, where the mother is the sole caregiver for at least six months. If you want to get a baby from a new, uh, uh, from a mother that's just been born, uh, it's well known you have to kill the mother to get the baby. You can Nobody can get here that baby. Whereas um, in collective breeding groups, it's not just the mother who has the main investment in the infant but other relatives, sometimes grandparents, sometimes sisters, brothers, even fathers, who look after the infant. And um, that makes it much easier for the mother to raise the infant. Um, it provides an environment where um, there's input input from various members of the group, which adds a century to the, quote, education uh, of the infant. Um, and that, I think, makes a profound difference in the ultimate acquisition of language.
1: And so in, in addition to this, you have compounding this uh, uh, sort of collective um, reading. I reading. Yeah, think you um, also the fact that for human uh, or rather I should say Homo erectus and earlier um, ancestors of human beings, we have to stay with our mothers and our families longer when we're young. Is that correct? So that's also that, a contributing
2: that, factor. That, that's also correct. Yes.
1: Yeah. So in, in contrast to the chimpanzees where they're, they're often running how uh, much younger there's these, oh, yes. these and, times and, of, of shared attention.
2: Right. And we, uh, it's so easy to overlook the fact, let's go back to our being bipedal. Uh, one of the, consequences of being bipedal is that there's less need for a large pelvis. Uh, uh, if you're quadrupedal, you have to support the legs and arms. If you're bipedal, you only have to um, support two limbs. So the birth canal shrinks. If the birth canal shrinks, that limits the size of the baby's head and the brain that can pass through. And it turns out that The human infant's brain at birth is only about 25% of its adult size. A chimpanzee is about 50%. So much of the growth of the infant's brain is after they're born. But because the brain and the nervous system of the human infant is so limited, the infant can't even crawl. A chimpanzee, as I've known from my own experience with them, within a week, is literally climbing the walls in the bookcases, whereas uh, an infant chimpanzee can't even, you know, sit up or, or stand. So what happens with human infants is that they have to be cradled. And um, uh, our ancestors lost their hair, so there's nothing for the infant to hang on to. The mother literally usually on the left side, holds the infant, and holds the infant in a way so that the infant's head is about seven to eight inches away from the mother's eyes. And we know that infants have a very strong proclivity for um, focusing on an adult's face, and there is intense eye gaze uh, interplay between the infant and the mother, which, again, you don't see in uh, apes, which is crucial for the first step of intersubjectivity. So, you know, back around Homo erectus, it seems as if there was a perfect storm of all kinds of factors, cradling, um, intense emotional um, connection between the infant and the mother, the need for uh, for feeding a large brain um, that converged on uh, factors that eventually produce the first word, which is absent from apes,
1: and and then at that point, in terms of the transmission of language, and again using Chomsky a little bit as a foil here, instead of a genetic mutation which continues and is selected for, what you have is a continuation of these biological uh, factors as well as sort of social factors. And some sort of, would you say, cultural transmission of the the word? How would you characterize that?
2: Well, it's important to distinguish between biological and cultural evolution. And I think that up to about Homo erectus, most of the factors that influenced communication were biological. But once um, you got to the first words, what Bickerton calls proto-words, I mean, his theory was that for more than a million years, our ancestors only communicated with words. Um, that, by the way, is a very interesting challenge. Uh, I've asked many students, for example, to uh, play a game uh, where they imagine their homo erectus and they can only communicate with words. And that is incredibly difficult. Um, you don't have any culture to teach you words and figuring out what those words could be is is not a trivial problem. But anyway, um, so our ancestors did communicate with words and that was the beginning of culture as we know it. And eventually um, the vocabulary became large enough so that some sort of rules were needed to remember a string of words and that's where grammar came in. so our, our the way our children learn words is both biologically and culturally determined, in contrast to how Homo erectus learned and invented words, which was more biological until proto words came into being. Right,
1: right. Human infants don't have to. Um, or rather, I should say, human adults don't have to uh, kind of bootleg themselves into the idea of intentionality and reference.
2: That's because it's all there there right. for them, right? right? So
1: let's let's kind of draw things together here. Given your criticisms of. Chomsky and Skinner and work which has preceded you. Um, you noted that towards the end of the book some some comments about where you think investigation should go on from here, and obviously you're still actively involved in this. W- where would you like the fields fields that are involved in investigating these questions to go? What do you think people should be looking at?
2: Well, I think um, if I were a graduate student and I was starting my career. I would be a developmental psychologist and study infants and try to tease apart all of the nonverbal mechanisms that occur in the infant's first year leading up to the uh, leading up to words um, until a few years ago, everybody spoke of a so-called nine month revolution when joint attention appeared but an awful lot happens before that nine-month revolution. And um, what developmental psychologists do, and much more is needed, is they videotape infants and mothers, and then they synchronize the videotapes, and raters um, evaluate the affect of the mother and the infant, and they show how they're related. Um, And all of these nonverbal contingencies are there just to be studied if people would take the trouble. It's much harder to study nonverbal communication than verbal communication, which is why most psycholinguists still work with children who have language. But um, if if you're gonna explain language, you have to start from the beginning, which means you have to understand nonverbal communication, emotional communication, before you get to that. So that's where I think um, I would go if I were starting all over again.
1: Great. And one other question for you. You mentioned that you're working on another book. You said the, the in the beginning, there were no words. right? Can you say a little bit about that and, and other research that you're working on currently?
2: Well, um, the idea is that most linguists think that the challenge of the evolution of language is to understand where grammar came from. Uh, I agree that that's a challenge, but that's sort of like explaining skyscrapers when you don't even know how to build a simple hut. And um, to, to explain grammar, you need words. So I would like to use what's called the bottom-up approach um, of getting from animal communication to words. um, I recognize, I have very little to say about getting from words to grammar. That's really Chomsky's department. Um, And he's uh, made brilliant contributions of different kinds of grammar that will work once you have words. But um, where I'd like to go is understanding, uh, more where words come from
1: gotcha and just to kind of put a put a pin on this for for our, our, our listeners, what's the upshot of all of this what's um, I mean why should we care about these these questions overall it's 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 interesting I think for folks of us who are listening to this this channel but you know if you were to kind of sell what these questions are, are telling us to other people what why should we care about
2: well, this I, I the reason I would care is that it has to do with the question what makes us human and um it's clear that what makes us human is language and but nobody can understand nobody has come up with a good explanation of where language comes from and to fit humans in other words darwin said um very wisely that we evolved from um, other ancestors. But unfortunately, Darwin couldn't tell us how we did that. He said there were um, an indeterminately large number of small steps. And um, on the one hand, we're very empathic. We're also very anthropomorphic. And we're very eager to attribute language to animals. But that comes out of our empathy and or anthropomorphism, but we don't know what the difference is. And to really understand what it is to be a human being, I think you have to understand where language comes from. And I think that's what the significance of this work is all about.
1: Gotcha. Well, Herbert, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciated it. And uh, the book for our listeners, again, is Why Chimpanzees Can't Learn Language and Only Humans Can by Columbia University Press, published in 2019. And we'll have a link up, as always, on the uh, podcast website. So thank you.
2: Sure thing. Pleasure talking to you.